guys, it's Lori. This episode is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Check them out at csbible.com. Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 168, The Basics on How to Engage Racial Divides. Yes, welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast where we talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and sadly my co-host, Matt, can't join us, but I do have that most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi, guys. Hey, Steve. So glad you are here with us. Man, guys, I'm really glad you're here today with us to talk about racial tensions or divides. And if you've ever felt scared of engaging this conversation, if you're just like, ah, I'm over it, I skip to the next episode, or uh, you don't even know where to start. So you actually do want to engage. You, you feel this tension and you have this heart that like wants to say the right thing, but you don't know what to say. Today may be a really great place to start because we're going to talk about what words to use and what not to use. And uh, I'm really excited for you to meet our guest. But why are we talking about racial tensions if we usually we talk about sexuality? Well, we talk about sexuality in the greater gospel conversation. And like I said at the top of the show, the purpose of this podcast is to talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. And bridging these racial divides is a gospel issue. And our guest, Daniel Hill, is going to help us unpack it. Before I introduce you to Daniel, I did want to remind you that we so appreciate it when you guys stop, take the time to rate and review the podcast that helps other people to find it. And maybe, you know, if you enjoy this episode or any of the other ones, share it with a friend uh, that helps to get the word out. And, um, we really believe in what we're doing. And if you believe in it too, share it, rate it, review it. Thanks guys. Okay. I am so excited to introduce you to Daniel Hill. If you do not know him, he is the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church located in the West Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago. He is the author of White Awake, an honest look at what it means to be white and 1010 Life to the Fullest and White Lies, which is the one I most recently read. And like I was telling him before we hit uh, record. It was wrecking me in such a good way on the airplane. I just kept stopping and staring him at me like, oh, this hurts. I don't even know how to describe this is good conviction I'm feeling. Uh, but it's called White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Daniel and his wife, Elizabeth, have two children and live in Chicago. And you can find his writing just about so many beautiful things at PastorDanielHill.com. Daniel, welcome. Thank you, Lori. It's such an honor to be here with you. We are so excited to hear your gospel journey, uh, as well as hear the heart of what you write about. But first, let's get to know you better. And audience, we are bringing back the question of the week from uh, the week before. Um, but we will talk to Daniel first and ask this question. What did you collect as a kid? Baseball cards, pogs, Pokemon, coins. I don't know. <laughs> What'd you do? <laughs> Uh, I collected animals. What, like real life? Yeah, we um, where we lived, there was a lot of snakes and stuff like that. And then we also had a summer cottage that had turtles, frogs, snakes, stuff like that. So I, I for about four years, had a little um, uh, pet store out of my garage. So whatever I would catch, I would sell. It probably wasn't the most uh, 
kind thing to the animals because I don't know how good their owners ended up being. I'm much more thoughtful about that now. But yes, I at any given time, I would have eight or nine animals and even expanded to ducks and rabbits and all, all different kinds of things. So I collected animals when That's I was a kid. so cute. I mean, cool, <laughs> only awesome. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like people are okay now with the word cute. Steve, well, I'm, I'm good with cute. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, was there something adorable or just straight well, up awesome that um, you collected as a kid? I would say anything Star Wars, mostly action figures, and there were Star Wars trading cards. So I wasn't ah. like baseball, any kind of sports trading cards, but the Star Wars trading cards. What? Yeah. I did not know you were this level of nerd. Oh, yes. Even more so as a kid. Does Matt know this? I, I don't know. You guys need to talk yes, even we more will. about we'll how definitely. deeply you love Star Wars. <laughs> uh, I collected as a kid... Um, Real, I've talked about this before, but Polly Pockets, the ones that are the choking hazard, not the ones that were created like 20, 10, 10 years ago that are like the cute little sassy high school ones. It was the ones that were like just small enough to shove in your mouth and die. <laughs> I liked those. And they were like, you'd put them in their little houses that looked like a big clamshell. And it was called Polly Pocket because you're supposed to be able to shove, jam this thing in your pocket. You were about to, you're going to pop a seam if you jammed it in your pocket, but I sure tried and I collected them. Okay. Gospel time. So the purpose of this podcast is to talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone every day. And so we love mm -hmm. asking our guests this set of questions. If the gospel is, I am more loved than I imagine, yet more sinful than I believe. When was the gospel first good news for you, Daniel? And how is it still today? Uh, well, so I'm a pastor's kid, so I have been on a church pew since the day I was born, so I could have recited the gospel message from very early age, but I, I wouldn't really say it was probably until age 22 where it um, kind of landed in a really significant way for me. Um, I was attending Willow Creek at the time, which is a large church in the kind of suburban area of Chicago. They had a 20-something service, so I was going just for social reasons. Um, again, I had all my life known all the right answers. I, I had never strayed, you know, in terms of like rejecting Christianity, but I had been lukewarm for a really long time. And it's the most, I, I don't know, I had almost an Isaiah 6 kind of moment. It was not based on anything that's being said in the service, but I had an over, I was standing at the back of service ready to go out, hang out with all my friends afterwards. And there was just this overwhelming sense of the presence of God that came wow. over me. And it was beautiful, but also terrifying. Um, it's why it felt kind of like Isaiah 6 like, you know, where. Um, I was overwhelmed by it. And so um, I actually didn't go out with my friends because I was so shaken. I went back to my apartment and it was such a surreal experience because it was doing something I had, pr I had prayed the sinner's prayer every year from like eight on just to right. make sure yeah. you know, that Fire it had taken, right? You know, just in case any sins that week had just, you know, disqualified me again. Um, but I went to my apartment, into my room. I kneeled um, in my bed. I don't think I'd ever done that despite growing up in church. And I kneeled in my bed and I said, God, I realized that I've been kind of trifling with you for 22 years now. And I really had this sense of a beautiful invitation, but I don't really even know the theology of it. It's just behind, this is just the experience. I had this sense of God saying like, I've let you kind of live in that middle ground long enough. <laughs> so yeah. tonight, you, tonight you decide to either accept the invitation or not. And I don't, I'm not trying to suggest what the not would have been, but there was very much a sense of there's a line, in the, a line in the sand, but a beautiful line in the sand, kind of like the rich young ruler where it's like, come, you can have everything, right? Mm. But you have to kind of leave behind that old life. So that was a very definitive. So even though I was a pastor's kid, grew up in church, I still very much had like kind of a before and after moment in terms of full-fledged being kind of enraptured by the gospel and never turning back again after that. That is awesome. So how do you still need that good news of the gospel today? 
I mean, I, I think some uh, probably the most important image to me in the whole Bible. I'm not saying it's more important than for you know, just in general, but for me, the, the fact that Jesus gets baptized before he starts his ministry is um, fascinating to me. Mm. Um, that before he stepped into what God had him to step into, he needed to be reminded that he's loved, that God sees him as a son, that God takes pleasure in him. I think he needed at the end too. It's the same words of the Transfiguration, right? So I, I think he needed it on both sides, but. Um, I, that's actually how I pray. That's how I start every morning. I kneel down and try my best to kind of locate myself within the reality of the spirit of God and with the father who's praying over me. And so mm-hmm. I try to start and end every day by kind of dwelling in the good news of the fact that I'm a son, that I'm beloved, that he takes delight and pleasure in me and then kind of go into the world to participate in Christ from that place. So I, I I am at the point now, and I think it makes me an authentic evangelist, right? It's not about apologetics from me anymore. It's like, I don't understand how anybody lives, how anybody functions without being filled with those words. So mm. it's very easy for me in an authentic way for a touch my Christian. I'm like, well, how do you start your morning? I don't understand. I don't understand how anybody goes into the world without yeah. kind of submersing themselves in, in, in that language of the belovedness. So, um, so yeah, true. so it's, it's an every minute good news thing for me. Man, I hear you. It's functional christianity i mean it's just not possible anymore which makes me want more of god and then to tell my neighbor more because i just need him so much yeah yeah so you've written these couple of books uh white awake and white lies can you help Mm -hmm. us you know for people who are listening to hear why is engaging why why engaging these racial divides why is this a gospel issue and not a political issue only yeah, sorry. I always have to do double take that. I, I mean, I know that's what people have been conditioned to think. That's what I was accused of, even when I started going deeper into this. Was I was in my twenties when I started taking this seriously, and that, that there was it was a double bizarreness in that I couldn't figure out why the churches I was part of didn't talk at all about yeah. the system of race, and then I couldn't figure out why when I started investigating it from my belief in following Jesus with all my heart, that all of a sudden I started getting called liberal or political or social gospel. It was so confusing it goes very it goes very deep but there would be a a lot of ways to answer that i'm trying to think of what's just a fast one um you know if we just take the great commandment let's just start there right we're supposed to love the lord our god with all of our heart soul mind strength love our neighbors ourselves right so um there is no way you could look at any objective measure of um, how people are doing in this country um, whether it be economically socially health wise where they live kind of access they have uh, every single every single um, indicator you would look at shows that by and large white people are experiencing kind of our country in a very different way than black people for sure and there's kind of a range between black and white on that um, so it's just a most basic level if you live in a world where certain people have access to things and other people don't i mean that's just such a fundamental basic kind of reality right that mm-hmm. you would be concerned to say why is my neighbor in you know why is this happening right i mean it's the, it's the parable of good samaritan right the religious people that just walk right past the person that's injured you know and so i, I the only reason i hesitate that because i don't want to make this a patronizing kind of thing that we're doing that but i mean in terms of just theology just even starting there if our job is to love god and love our neighbor and certain neighbors continue to do well and certain neighbors don't you know I mean, it just seems so basic to me that um, we would be stirred to start asking questions and to understand why that is. So there are white people uh, who hear what you just said and they're like, yeah, sure. The statistics. All right. We'll look at schooling. We'll look at access. We'll look at who, how many people are millionaires and uh, where the people live. But I, I worked hard for this. So I hear you, but I'm, 
I'm, I worked hard for this. So it's defending, but then also I always hear an edge of fear. Like, don't take this away from me. I worked really hard. So what's going on in our hearts and uh, yeah, what's, what's going on in our hearts when we're doing that? Yeah. Thanks, Laura. I mean, I think that's astute. I mean, there's a lot of theological reflection we could do that I think is important, but I think you're also speaking to just the reality of being emotionally aware, emotionally healthy, right? I mean, um, I'm sure your listeners have heard this, that fear not is the most repeated command in the whole scripture, right? In fact, some count, I don't know if this is accurate or not, some say 365 times, <laughs> one, <laughs> one, one, one per day, right? But the reality of uh, being conscious of our fear, understanding our fear is very, very important part of our faith, right? So I, I think you are right. I think there's a fear response, but we have to ask, like, what, what is it exactly I'm afraid of in this conversation, right? I don't think we stop long enough to ask that, or what is it that I feel I need to defend? Um, what, what am I defending and from who? <laughs> like, right. those actually are pretty important self-introspection questions. And so um, I, I guess I just applaud. I think it's important to kind of come at this from every angle and the emotional awareness and health, I think, is definitely one of them. I'd love to jump to just a cold, hard fact, though, uh, is so from there. So for me, because if I start to feel like, you know, something, am I going to lose something? And I really want to be aware and I want to love my neighbor and I want to, you know, care and I want to like be humble. But if I start to feel that sometimes it helps too to just look uh, at cold, hard facts, namely one that really struck me in your book. Um, So I read it on an airplane, then I land in Austin, Texas, and I'm looking around at like the infrastructure uh, of like all these bridges and the money. And there's just a lot of there's wealth there. Yes, I know there's poverty, but looking at the wealth and I'm like, literally all of this was built on the backs of Mm -hmm. indigenous people and slaves. And so I'm not saying you who live in Austin, Texas, doing that. I'm just saying our country was. Can you talk a little bit, just cold, hard facts about how white the we as white Americans have our privilege where all these statistics come from built on the backs of people we murdered and enslaved. Can you just talk about that? (laughs) Um, Yeah, thank you. It's so true. This is always the challenge of how just kind of in a thumbnail sketch to get to these like really big ideas. Right. Right. Um, uh, But right. That is the origin story of our country is, you know, of course, this is so some of what we're getting into. If I can take a step back, we're getting into kind of what is race in a lot Mm. of ways. What is the system of race? And even that that itself is something most of us who are white haven't been kind of taught to think about in an accurate kind of a way. And so. Um, your question kind of gets to that because when white people started coming to America, they weren't called white back then, right? They were called Italian and Polish and Danish, you know, and you know wherever different front. In fact, there's all kind of writings. But I'm Irish, you know, and so um, uh, one of the most interesting books I read in my journey when I was trying to understand this was the book um, "How the Irish Became White." Hmm. And in that, um, Noel, I can't pronounce his last name. It's Ignatia or something like that. Um, he, he's a, but anyway, he talked about how. Um, in the early days of America's founding, there was kind of a hierarchy even within different European ethnic groups and Irish were at the bottom. They were often mistreated and didn't have access to kind of what the elite kind of Europeans had. So he's tracking how did how did Irish become white? And this is where it's very it's very connected to what you're asking about indigenous people and African people in that um, in the early days, we were so dependent on slave labor, honestly, um, to get our economy going. And there were white slaves at the beginning, but the slaves continued to revolt against the European landowners. And the easiest way to differentiate, you know, um, slave versus, you know, landowner or, you know, person in power was color. And so 
the, the idea of whiteness started to form um, to differentiate kind of who belonged in America and who didn't. And, and right, there's a whole bunch we could talk about of like for many, many decades, centuries even, you actually literally didn't have any rights if you weren't white. You had to literally be called white. This thing called white got invented and you didn't mm-hmm. have any access to owning land, to voting, to um, being a citizen um, without being white. And so anybody who wasn't white that affected, but it particularly affected black people because black became synonymous with slave. And if you were black, you were permanently a slave which we had never seen something like that in human history before, where slavery was tied to a color mm-hmm. and where slavery was a permanent condition, not something you could work your way out of. So we, we, I mean, it wasn't just us, others participated in slavery too, but our founding is built upon this reality of kind of the creation of a class called whiteness, which all Europeans started to kind of be absorbed into and creating a class called blackness, which assigned people to inferior human status and permanent slavery. And you know, it's, it's, it's a human abomination that really, I mean, you, you can make a case that says cruel and grotesque and far reaching as anything the world has ever seen. And mm-hmm. so uh, we're contending with one of the most profound kind of human right uh, violations that have ever happened in global history when we talk about how we came to be who we are. Well, and it's so interesting how even as you're talking, it's so like we grew up hearing really probably romanticized yes it's bad but stories of slavery and then you focus on the good on harriet tubman and people who you know and you don't think about no 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 in the fabric in generational sin has been passed on a from adam and eve like to see people as inferior and some is better than but then even as americans in the united states that we have in our DNA, our spiritual DNA, and yes, I don't know how it works right. in our actual, is to see people as less than. And so we've already right. been given generationally advantages. But then just as you're talking, it's like, oh, yes, yes, slavery. And then like, no, slavery. Like that we, we right. <laughs> these are image bearers of a holy God. Right. And we can like have our brains just be kind of numb to it. Like, no, we need to grieve that. And the statistics are outrageous and I don't have the numbers right here right now, uh, but just how many millions of indigenous people we murdered. It was something like 15 right. million. Do you have those numbers in your mind? I think that's about that. I mean, that, that would be that, that good estimates I think is in that range. Yeah. 15 million. Yeah. Uh, indigenous people murdered. And then we brought about 15 million from Africa to be our slaves. And yet we're like, I worked hard for this. Sure. We did. You did work hard in your life, but we also were handed, if you are white in America, you were handed advantages that we just inherited. So, okay, where do we go from here? Um, Can we go back to some basics? Because that was the the promise of this episode. So I noticed, you know, you talked a little bit what is race and how that's like totally a construct. What, What do you do? We still say like racial divides. Do we still say those words or should we talk instead in terms of ethnicity? I know. I actually think the word race is like if there's two words that I would kind of, especially Christians, I mean, I do some of this work in secular spaces, too, but I'm a pastor at the end of the day. That's the most important part. Um, uh, So like in our church, for instance, we ask people to be really thorough to use the words ethnicity and race um, as just representing two totally different things. Hmm. Um, It gets confusing when we use words interchangeably. So race is not a biblical word like race. Race is an invention of humankind. We just kind of described it. It was um, it's the system that was basically used to justify in not just America and other places, too. But, you know, it's part of our founding stories in this. But you needed some kind of way to make sense of native people in kind of 
a justification for the elimination of them. And they needed some way to make a case for black people being in permanent slavery. And so race was a classification system, really, Mm -hmm. um, which is why it's a profoundly spiritual issue, because when you're classifying who a human being is and what their value is, you're literally playing, I mean, literally playing God at that point, right? That's page one of scripture is God saying, we're going to create male and female in our image, in our likeness, right? That's where our value comes from is being made in the image of God. So anything that not only um, attacks a human being, obviously anything that attacks human beings against God, but when you actually try to rename human beings, that is, that is the most divine function that there is. So the system of race is created by human beings for evil purposes, but it was for the purpose of playing God. It was to say, um, there, you, you, who you are in God is not what makes you um, who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's what your racial background is. Uh, in the secular world, Ibram Kendi is the best-selling author on race stuff, and his first landmark book was called Stamped from the Beginning. And he takes that from the first president of the Confederacy, who said that black people and white people are fundamentally different, that white people are superior and black people are inferior, that God stamped that on people from the beginning. Which you can call him an extreme racist, whatever, and disassociate. But the point here isn't to say who's racist and who not. The point is to figure out how we got to where we are. Yes. And um, and when you hear somebody describe it so clearly like that, that we're stamped from the beginning a certain way. Um, that's playing God. And it's why it's, it's mind, but that's a different answer than when you asked earlier, why should Christians care about this? Right. Because that's something since the days of the Israelites, God is always concerned with false gods and idols that people are turning to. And I would make the case that there's no more rival God that's more powerful than the system of race and the lies behind it. Mm. Ethnicity, on the other hand, that's a biblical term, right? Um, Matthew 28, Jesus says, go to all the ethnoses, all the nations, you know, to, to, to proclaim the gospel. Acts 17, um, the Apostle Paul, when talking to the Athenians of Mars Hill, says, God has made all the ethnoses, all the nations, and Jesus has put them in the appointed place and time, uh, right? So ethnicity is talked all throughout the Bible. And so that's why I think it's important to differentiate. Ethnicity just represents kind of our, you know, where God put us, what skin God put us, what family, what time in history. It's all stuff that's from God, redeemable. Race describes you know, and the lion came with the same Mufasa and there's like the uh, shudder a little. When we hear the word race, that's actually what I think is the most appropriate response. Whenever we hear the word race, I think we have to use it because it's real. But when we hear it, there should be a shudder to it because what we're thinking of is this evil system of reclassifying human beings, um, saying some are superior, some are inferior. Everybody's measured based on that um, spectrum. Mm. It's it's one of the most dangerous and evil systems that's ever been invented. So I think it's important to use, but I also think we should shudder when we use it because um, so racial divide is fine to use. Um, we should talk about the term race, but I think whenever we're talking about it, we should realize we're describing something that human beings created to try to play God. Hmm. Okay, so you can hear how there could be confusion in people who are not studying it like you are, and I'm trying my best to learn more and more where they're like, oh, well, yeah. I just don't see color. We're like, no, right. no that's, not the, that's not the thing. Why is it not the thing, right. though? Can you, can you just say the sentence about why being colorblind is not the goal? Yeah, let me do a fast answer and an immediate intermediate answer because I think they're both important. The fast answer is because God's not colorblind, <laughs> right? So in Revelation 7, 9, we see that all the nations, all the tongues are together worshiping God. And so cultural diversity and differences are not just an earthly thing in heaven. Our right. differences are represent, recognized by God. So why would we work so hard to not see those when God doesn't work And so again, hard? you're talking about ethnicity. You're talking about, right. right. Okay. That's a good point. Cause that actually is the difference between the two answers. In fact, um, uh, Dr. Walter Strickland, who's a professor at Southeast seminary. One of his phrases is he says, ethnicity comes with us into heaven and race does not. 
Because race is right. a system of classification of good and bad. Right. So I just we need That's to get right. this into our bones so we can That's speak right. from our. That's why right. I like that line: ethnicity goes with us into heaven, race does not. Yes. And so what, what what we're getting there is saying. So you know, I'm sure every listener would say, "Oh my God, I don't see people as some as better and some worse." I, there's not a race in my body, like. You're probably right. Like, that's not the point of this exercise. The point of this exercise is to see how powerful that system of race is mm-hmm. and how evil it is and how sinful, honestly, it is. And so the minute somebody says, I want to be colorblind, they they basically have relinquished the ability to recognize the sin that has formed the system that we're up against. And so that's the danger of being colorblind is like, God wants us to name our sin and then repent of it, right? Mm-hmm. That's like how we get clear, how we get clean. But when you refuse to even acknowledge what you've done, it really muddles the process. And mm-hmm. so to be colorblind is to pretend like we're starting right now, which we're not. We've inherited, like you said, we've inherited these kind of systems and structures. And I think Jesus Christ is working very hard to dismantle those and call us to be part of that. But if we're not willing to understand how we got here, we can't participate in Christ in a meaningful way. And colorblind stops us from participating. Hey guys, it's Lori. And Matt. And Steve. Hey guys, we have recently discovered a new to us translation of the Bible called the Christian Standard Bible. And you know what? We love it. Currently, we really like the Holy Land Illustrated Edition. Yeah, I love that one because I've never been to Israel or Turkey or anything. And so to like see those places while I'm reading. Yeah, it just it makes you feel like uh, like you're experiencing it without having to drop a few thousand dollars to do so. Uh, yeah. So, guys, if you want to check out this Holy Land Illustrated Bible, visit csbholylandillustratedbible.com. And we'll put that link in the show notes. So just to restate, there is repentance going on as far as these racial inequities, these divides, this system of injustice that we've inherited, whether or not you've ever said a racist thing or had a racist thought in your mind or heart. If you are white, uh, I would say we've, we've inherited these uh, racial systems. And so to repent is to really repent on behalf of decades, hundreds and hundreds of years of racial inequity and enslavement and murder um, uh, that we've inherited. So that's, that's what we're saying. But then at the same time, it's celebration of the different ethnicity. So there's celebration and repentance that's happening. Right. They go hand in. Can I, can, just to like round it out, I think everything you said, I'm right on. Um, a lot of us who are white get stuck on the repentance part, particularly in the way you just described it, like mm-hmm. the, the notion of collectively repenting for the sins of our ancestors is a tough pill, even though I think it's a clearly biblical idea. So I don't dispute that at all. The one thing I would add, though, that I think is even farther reaching, um, that word repent, as I've studied it, it's you know, we get the same English word pensive from it, right? Like it's, it's a change pensive. in thinking. A lot of us have heard it's a turning around, you know, which it is, but it's, it's also, you know, metanoia, it's a transformation of how you think in the world. Right. And so when I, for me, when I think of repentance, while that part is true too, that's something you can do once and be done with. For me, the most important aspect of repentance is this acknowledgement that Jesus Christ has a perspective on the problem of race that I don't currently share. Mm -hmm. He sees it in a way that I don't currently see it. And so to repent is to say, I don't yet have the mind of Christ in this arena. And I want to have the mind of Christ. I want to think differently and act differently. So that doesn't negate everything you said. I think that's right on. But it also takes it to an everyday kind of a reality where this isn't about you're on the witness stand to prove whether you're racist or not. It's about saying Jesus is active in the world and sees this problem in a certain way. And most of us don't see it that way. 
And in every other arena, we'd be troubled by that. Right? Yeah. Uh, we want to have the mind of Christ, but in this arena, for whatever reason, we're, we let ourselves off the hook from the dissonance of not having the mind of Christ. Okay, so we see on this same path, thank you, is you will see and hear uh, white people say, well, I'm not going to apologize for being white. I'm proud of who I am. I'm sick of groveling. Now, me, I'm married to a therapist. I'm doing a lot of hard work all the time in the work we're doing. And I'm hearing, let's talk about your father wounds. And when did your dad tell you you were worthless? And this is tapping right, on right. unforgiveness of your father. Sorry, right, I'm right, just being right, honest right. with you guys. No, no, I think in that, right, yeah. that's always part of it. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. So how, how though, if you're not going to say, let's talk about your father wounds, how can yeah. we halt some of our defensiveness? If someone's like, oh, repent for, I didn't do anything. You know, again, kind of going back to where we started. Like, I'm not going to, I'm proud yeah. of who I am. I'm proud of my white ethnicity or I don't know. And I, I probably said that too snarky, but like, what, what would you say if you're not going to go take them to therapy? You know, I, sometimes I don't think it's a bad idea to segment this a little bit. And I obviously think it's really important to do the internal work. So I'm not suggesting we don't do that. But honestly, for us, a lot of white folks, it actually, the process is a little bit cleaner if we start not with ourselves, but looking at the world. Um, so if you start with, I'm proud of myself, or why do I need to apologize? You're, it's it kind of by definition, it's a very self-centered kind of approach to this conversation, right? You're trying to understand mm -hmm. yourself in this, when really the biggest problem is that there's this whole world organized around these lies of race that says these people are more valuable, these people are less valuable, and then it's organizing neighborhoods, organizing schools, organizing businesses around that. So really, the, the, the far more expansive work is to like pause for a minute on yourself and come to see the reality of this in the world. And so once I'm, so if I'm being asked when somebody like this is me, I'm like, let's just stop talking about you for a little. I don't really, I, I, that's just not my biggest concern, whether or not you feel validated in your whiteness or not. Like there are hundreds and thousands of people who are being affected by this thing out there. So how about we like pause on your journey for a minute and start realizing what's mm -hmm. happening out in the world. And yeah, I, I, we need to be holistic. So eventually we do need to come back to ourselves. I'm not suggesting a permanent, you know, yeah. release of that, but it, in some ways it conspires with the individualism that we already have, right? Like the biggest problem here is not that white people are saying the N word and we need to, we need to, we need to stop that. The biggest problem is that, like you said, we're up against a 400 year old kind of principality here yeah. and we need to all be on our knees and then responding to asking how Jesus would have to participate. And if we're thinking about ourselves too much, yeah, when you take a step back, you almost kind of realize thinking about yourself in this is really the kind of much smaller piece, much bigger piece is do I have an accurate appraisal of what's happening in the world? Mm -hmm. um, and, and if somebody will spend some time doing that, once you start seeing the world, it's inevitable you start saying, wow, how have I been formed by this thing in the world? But it, it's a different posture than that. You're not on constant defense. You're kind of like, well, man, I can't fully understand anything in the world if I don't understand me in it mm -hmm. as well. So it's like when you get back to the place of you, there is a conversation to be had there. But in some ways, I almost feel like th that that has such a chance of dis uh, disrupting the process and kind of shutting us down anyway. It's almost like, you know, it, it would, let's just park that one for a little while of how you're feeling about your own you know, relationship with it. Like, why don't you focus on learning what's happening out there and understand how we got here and how serious it is? Because mm -hmm. once you start to see that, it really shakes you. Yeah. Once you see how far reaching it is, it really shakes you. It, it, it really does. And that's what I experienced while reading your book. So, okay, we still are using these words white and black and indigenous. Are we using ethnicity words or are we using race words? That's where I'm like, because I think you can get caught in. Yeah, like My mouth gets caught on my own word. And then I'm like, I don't know how to mm -hmm. talk. And I want to talk yeah. and I want to engage it right. So why, why do we still use words like white and black? 
It's a good question. There, I mean, there are debates on that, right? I mean, I, I do honor the fact that this is complex, especially when you're newer to it. It's a little bit overwhelming trying to like sort through all the words. Um, where I would land on that is it's the system that the world is organized around. And so I think we should use the language still because um, it's almost like we need to disrupt from within, right? Like, like mm-hmm. I, would th- I think what Jesus is calling all of us to do is like speak truth to the lies that are in this system, but you can't really leave the system <laughs> Yeah. Um, there's not really an option to, and even if you could, I'm not sure it'd be the right thing anyway. Like, I think we need to kind of transform within. So uh, the term white is problematic um, because it's a category that collapses all European people into a single category and assigns superior value. To it's super problematic. And I think we should totally use it because it's a system that we're designed around. So mm. I just think there's a growing knowledge that, you know, so it's not, it's not working towards eliminating the word. It's working towards a higher consciousness of what the word represents and how even the very term doesn't represent how God would want us to think of each other. Um, but I don't think that means we stop using it. Um, I just think we have a growing consciousness as we use it. We're That'd be my take on it. Using the language of the day in order yeah. to start where people are. And then, cause the yeah. systems again, like you're talking about, it's the bigger systems that we need to be focused on. So let's just, let's use yeah. the language in order to, with yeah. kindness, move to, uh, yeah. but in order to move to the bigger picture. Yeah. I've had many, many, many conversations of people, uh, you know, like I said, we're very heart focused therapy world, but this matters. But then I'll have pushback from people say racism is all a matter of the heart. We just need to be unified in the gospel. And this is just a heart deal. So I'm going to work on my heart and then I'm going to love my brother. The end. What do you say? Uh, I want to be cautious to like not swing from one spectrum to the other. So my answer would not be that the heart is unimportant. (laughs) Like I think that God is in the business of changing hearts and systems are created by people and people operate out of where their heart is. Right. So if you get a critical mass of redeemed people whose hearts change, systems could change from that. Um, So you can't separate one from the other. The problem is when you restrict it to that, when it's just heart, um, that ignores very serious and very real systems of inequality Right. So like our, the church that our neighborhood is in, right, this every single school in that neighborhood is is facing the results of decades and decades and decades of disinvestment, which is traced to almost every neighborhood in the United States. And it's more pronounced in the north, but almost every neighborhood, every city in the United States is shaped by racism. Right? Mm-hmm. Like um, there are all these pe- areas where black people couldn't live, um, where white people shut the doors down. Right. And so they were excommunicated to areas where there's no infrastructure, no schools, no economy, you know, and then you can't have the white people who restricted all that then say, well, we just need to focus on hearts. It's like, well, no, we created that, right? Like hearts, hearts is not unimportant. It's just not enough to make amends for what has happened here. So I don't want to de-emphasize the heart change. I just, we have to learn to understand racism is built on a lie. This is where I think the spiritual language comes again. Racism is built on this lie about human value. It says some people are superior white, some people are inferior black, and then it measures, you know, Asian, Middle Eastern, Latino, it measures it based on the proximity to those two poles. And the lie is what we have to be aware of. That's why I named it white lies, of course. And we just have to see that those lies have very real impact. They don't just mess up souls. They mess up neighborhoods. They mess up communities. They mess up kind of other things. And so we just have to continue to grow to see how the lie of racism messed things up and how the truth of Jesus will repair those things. It's like how Isaiah said, we need to be repairers of broken walls, right? Mm. Um, So, yeah. So, again, hard important. It's just not enough. Uh, Yeah. It's in heart and systems. Oh yeah, heart and systems. And it's not political. 
just keep fighting that that lie uh, that it's not. I mean, it's yeah, not, poli- where, yeah, policies right. are Christian, important, but it's not just that. Right. Yeah. Well, right, you know, I think when we're healthy, I, I don't. We should people on both sides of the political class should be able to agree what a lie, right? So the lie that human beings can be measured based on race is a lie that both parties should agree with, right? Yeah. And then there might be a difference in what's the right policy to do about that. But mm. um, yeah, it, it's unfortunate if it ever happens where one party agrees. Anyway, we won't get into that. I agree, it's not a political issue at all. It's a amago day issue, right? God says human beings are valuable because God creates us in His image. Race says human beings that value is tied to where you're at on the racial hierarchy. That's the lie we're up against. Do you have more hope or less hope now here in 2021 for Christians really leaning into celebrating ethnic differences while dismantling racial divides and being truly unified in the gospel? Do you have more hope now than maybe two to five years ago or less hope because we seem to hate each other so much? Uh, what there's a mixture, you know, certain, I mean, there was the tragedy of George Floyd, you know, mm-hmm. last year and also kind of others that kind of happened near that Brianna Taylor and about Arbery, et cetera. Um, there was a response in the white church at large that was much more um, appropriate than typically happens. Oftentimes this is just ignored and, and dismissed. Um, but I, mean, I, I still have churches call me saying we got shaken by that. We're trying to figure out, you know, so you see moments of hope when that happens but then in the next breath, you watch, this happens every time um, something, emer- and I'm just talking the church right now, something emerges in the church to kind of disable the conversation, right? So right now, I don't know if you're connected to this conversation or not, but it's amazing how fast this went viral. There's something called critical race theory yeah. that nobody ever even heard of two years ago. And it's suddenly the boogeyman in like Christian spaces across the country, right? And so it's just profoundly disappointing to me where you start to get some positive progress where a church is starting to talk about things in white church. And then in the next breath, there's like, oh, there's this secular approach talking about race that's dangerous and that's trying to hijack the gospel. We need to totally back up from this thing. From the whole thing. It's like, there's one bad yeah, thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so mm-hmm. right, yeah. So, they, so it's kind of like, so you're more concerned about a secular approach to combating racism than you are racism. I mean, that's really functionally what ends up happening. Um, and that's when it just reminds me that this thing is so much deeper than just um, a social inequality. Like there's just, there's just some kind of a force of darkness behind this where mm-hmm. every time we try to rise up, um, we falter quickly. Um, yeah. You know, this racism reminds me of when, remember when Jesus was sending out the disciples to heal people and they came back and said, we can't heal this one. Yeah. And Jesus says, but that one only comes out, that demon only comes out through prayer and fasting. Like, but we pray and fast all the time. <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. But it's just speaking to like, there's an, there's an enemy kind of uh, presence at times where the whole church is going to have to rise up for this thing to be pushed back. And I, I've not seen anything yet that suggests that as a white church, we're ready to rise up like in big numbers. Yeah. So because Jesus is who he is, I'll always have hope. But in terms of kind of concrete responses, I, I wouldn't say yet that I, I see anything that suggests a big enough percentage of the white church is ready to kind of rise up against this yet. But man, no revivals are always unforeseen when they come to me, this will be the next big revival because like you said, it's all based on repentance. This is all about like the white church has to think differently about this. Um, We we are not, we're not unified in being able to see this thing's a problem and needs to be combated until we're unified. We don't really have a chance in a meaningful way to join the rest Mm -hmm. of the church because for us, this is still something we're not even in agreement on that is real and dangerous. Well, in the word, as you're talking right now, we're not very humble. 
And mm. I think humility, I don't know if it comes precedes or it's a fruit of repentance, but I think if we are willing to humble ourselves Absolutely. and fall on our knees, is that the right. second Chronicles thing that everyone's always right. saying? Right. But well, truly it yeah, starts right. with yeah. humility. And so just as Absolutely. you were speaking, I was like, guys, if you feel in your heart defensiveness, every time racial divides right. and equity comes up, at, talk, talk to the defensiveness or have someone ask you some yeah. questions. What's going on in me? And is that, is there any fruit of fear and pride mixed yeah. up? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, a couple of my black colleagues from river city, you know, occasionally we'll do consulting with churches who are on this journey. You know, we have capacity. So we're meeting with one of the largest white churches in Chicago. We did a half day with their leadership team and we just kept talking about how deep the problem of race goes. And I think some of it hearing it from the two black colleagues and just seeing what they're up against every day. So the senior pastor at the end said, sorry to be like so blunt right now, but like I have never felt more hopeless in my whole life than at the end of this session, right? Like as you describe how deep this goes, I'm like, it makes me wonder what are we even doing here? Like I have no idea what to do next. And Shamika, one of my colleagues, she looked at me and said, she said, well, you maybe just got your first glimpse into what it's like to be black in America every single day, (laughs) right? This, this feeling of like, what do I do with all this? I don't even know how to move forward. Like that's our daily experience, but like we have to keep moving. And she's like, and so maybe for the first time, you're realizing why you need the black church. She's yes. like, I know you want black people to come to your church, but I don't know if you actually know why you want black people to come. The black church has to has had to learn how to continue to trust God, celebrate God, praise God, even in the midst of being up against this impossible system that dehumanizes and taxes every single day of our <sighs> lives. Right. And so the powerlessness we feel when we see this, that's not a bad thing in and all of itself. Right. It requires a much deeper spirituality to say oh, this thing is so much bigger than I realized. I have no idea what to do. And I'm terrified of it. OK, you, you might actually be seeing it clearly now. Right? <laughs> like for the first time, you might be starting to see it clearly. Like, right. You're not going to go to a seminar and fix this thing. Right. Like we are up against something major. But now we're starting to the mind of Christ. Right. Like we're seeing what this thing is. Um, and now we're dependent on other people. Like we're going to have to have a collective sense of prayer and response to it. That is so good. And I love that even though, are we landing the plane on hopelessness? I mean, a bit, but it's really, Kate, let's be real. All right. At least we're now we're being real. Right. And now let's invite the Holy Spirit in. Uh, right. I was just in a meeting right. with someone who is feeling a lot of despair about certain areas of her life. And I was like, at least you're getting real and you're inviting That's Emmanuel right. into right. it. That's right. That's right. So that's right. I totally believe that. Yeah. For someone who is uh, listening, black, white, uh, brown, whomever, and they're listening and they are like, okay, maybe there's a teeny tiny spark of hope from this conversation, but they're mostly 99% feeling despair. What is, what's a pastor, pastor us? What, uh, what would you say to encourage specifically in this space? Well, well here, here's the thing. Uh, I think this cuts even how we think of Christianity. Um, uh, so I, I'm going to say the same thing in three different ways very quickly. One would sure. be John 17, the, the unity prayer. We all love that prayer, right? But one of the things that's striking me in John 17, Jesus, when he's praying for his disciples, he says, I'm not trying to take them out of the world or out of the fight with the devil. I'm trying to send them in and pray for it, right? So being up against evil forces is not an unusual idea in the Bible. So the fact that there's an intimidating presence of evil, it was the norm in the New Testament. Mm. That says it one way. The only time Jesus talks about the church, other than church discipline, Matthew 16, when he says, I'll build my church on the, this profession of, you know, myself as the Messiah and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So one of our leaders, Brandon Green, in our church, he says, so basically what I hear in that is the location of a church should always be where the gates of hell are trying to prevail. Ooh, snap. Wherever the church, the, the gates of hell are trying to prevail, that's where the church most needs to be. Mm. Right. 
that that's that's a heck of a fight to be in against the gates of hell. But it's the church, right? Like this isn't yeah. some, this isn't something to be avoided. It's the identity of the church, right? You can go on and on. I think you could talk about Ephesians six when the Apostle Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. Why? Because we're up against principalities of darkness, not flesh and blood, right? I think that was just kind of normal for how the Apostle Paul thought of Christianity. When Jesus says, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done earth as it is in heaven. At the end, he says, and deliver us from evil, right? Like there's an assumption that as we pray for the kingdom coming, that we're up against the teeth of evil in it. So to me, there's hope in that. Like this is who Jesus is and what he's doing. I have no idea if it'll be in my generation where we see the gates of hell in this one fully pushed back, but it's who the church is. I, I don't even see how we can think of church honestly as that. So to me, there's a lot of hope in that. It's not a hope in are we going to be victorious tomorrow, but there's a hope in the sense that God's kingdom is coming, that this yes. is the work Jesus is doing, and that we've been called to participate. We've been fashioned for it. So good. I so appreciate the spiritual element that you're not adding into this, that you are highlighting the reality, mm -hmm. both the darkness and the light, and yet the systems yes. that divide us in some of the language. So I feel encouraged. Um, I feel even increasingly humbled and I want to open my eyes even more um, and really lean in. Uh, I think for me, a starting point is really prayer and then awareness for God would help me to move forward, not hide, not only focus on the heart, but prayer and then yeah. move in. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for sharing um, your wisdom and just real, real life gospel today. Mm. Thank you, Laura. I so respect you, and it's, I'm honored to be on your show with you. Thank you for inviting me in. Oh, man, you guys, please go get Daniel Hill's amazing book that wrecked me in the best ways. The title, again, is White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us Wherever You Get Your Books. We have a question of the week, guys, for next week. You can answer it by emailing podcast at lorikrieg.com or follow Lori Krieg on the socials where I post it pretty last minute to get your response because I always forget. But this is the question. Which of Snow White's seven dwarves describes you the best? Bashful, doc, dopey, grumpy, happy, sleepy, or sneezy, or a combo? You can pick two. Only two. For some reason, not three, but just two. <laughs> well, which one describes you the best right now? Thank you again to Daniel Hill. And now for all of us at the Hole in My Heart podcast, guys, we will see you next week.